Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rice Mastery and I'm excited to have Mark Phillips, who's a managing partner at Levin Tribes Ventures. Uh, Mark uh, was a management consultant focusing on M&A between corporations and growth stage startups. Uh, Mark earned his MBA from University of Chicago Booth School of Business, focusing on entrepreneurial finance and strategic management. Welcome to the show, Mark. Rohit, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, uh, you know, before before you started uh, Eleven Tribe Ventures, you were, you were a consultant. You worked in a couple of VC funds. You know, how did how did you get your entry into, into the world of venture capital? Yeah, the story is a little bit longer than that. I did have some background working in the consultancy space for for venture and did some work in venture capital. It was actually uh, my my first foray into entrepreneurship was actually as a, a founder. So during business school at the University of Chicago. Uh, I was able to launch a company, which was a uh, uh, healthcare hardware device for type 1 diabetics. It was called Diasense. I had built it. I was trying to scale it. And all <laughs> to make a very, very long story short, Rohit, it didn't go well. Um, we were building a product that ultimately a, a pretty significant competitor in the space released on their own. And, and we were kind of left there holding our designs about a year and a half behind, realizing that this business wasn't going to be successful. Um, it was through that experience, Rohit, that I really struggled with personally, and just to be very candid, I struggled with this idea of how do we as entrepreneurs attach our identity and our value as people to the performance of our company, right? And we see this, I think, every day in entrepreneurship where people want to say, hey, I'm successful because my business is successful, but that's not true, right? I mean, we as people have our inherent value, and I as an entrepreneur really struggled with that when my business failed. So as I came through the failure of that business and kind of came out the other side, I became very convicted that I wanted to switch sides of the table. So spent time at Booth really starting to understand entrepreneurial finance, uh, operations, cap table management, all these good things that venture capitalists need to be aware of. And, um, you know, after working in some venture funds in Chicagoland, I just became very, very passionate about the topic and explored what it would look like to launch my own fund. And so that was around 2017, 2018. Over the course of a couple of years, to be very clear, launching a fund is not a quick endeavor. Uh, it is a it is a time-consuming, lengthy endeavor. But after a couple of years, several years at least, of kind of exploring the idea, uh, I launched our fund in 2021, and uh, we've now been operating for just about 18 months. So, super, super interesting. And you know, you you started at, at a B school. You've had a couple of students at at a, at a VC firm. Uh, yeah, you know, are there any any you know basic building blocks that can be can be taught in investing? Uh, or, uh, you know, or do you think a, a VC needs to learn from experience and time? Oh, boy. Uh, excellent question. I, and it's actually one of the things I struggle with as, as the managing partner of our firm. I think, I think investing in general is a remarkably um, learned experience. And so you need to be around other people who have done it. There's, if it was a science, we'd all have figured it out by now, right? right. If, you know, take this one, do that one. Everybody makes a lot of money. It's not. It's an art, you know? And, and so... Your answer, it's both and, of course, right? So it is an art, and I've tried to surround myself with individuals who aren't necessarily part of my firm, but play roles as advisors and on boards for me personally, just to learn from that, because I recognize the necessity of that. But I also think there is a science component, right? There are some basic blocking and tackling aspects of, of venture capital and early stage finance, entrepreneurial finance, that anyone that's interested in breaking into venture capital needs to be aware of. You know, you need to understand income statements, you need to understand balance sheets, you need to understand statement of cash flows, right? And so those are sort of the three integral pieces of any business, but that only gets you so far, right? That only gets you, gets you to understand the, you know, it kind of sets the table, but then you got to prepare the meal, right? So what is it about this addressable market that we think is interesting? From our firm's perspective, we're also incredibly oriented around people. 
you have the horse and jockey analogy. Everybody has a different a version of it or a different answer. We're very, very bullish on a jockey, right? We think that uh, the right jockey can take a, 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 you know, a good idea, even in a bad market or a bad idea in a good market and make something successful of it. So I also think, so if you've got the sort of apprenticeship, the art, if you will, I think that's critical. You have the science, you have to understand the finance of things. But then there's the, the third you know, unknown piece, I'm not sure how to categorize it, which is the emotional intelligence, hmm. right? How do you connect with people and understand what motivates them? Because I think an entrepreneur launching a startup with the wrong motivation is really a recipe for disaster. Hmm. Uh, and so you have to really be able to master those three components. And I am, I am at the very starting line of this whole process, I'm trying to master just as much as the next person. But I think that's a process a lot of the folks should look into as they consider what it would look like to work in venture capital. Interesting. And uh, I, I want to understand what is, uh, how do you approach uh, uh, portfolio construction today since mm -hmm. you've been in the market for around 18 months? Yeah, there's a lot to that question. Um, you know, it's it's been a wild six months, really, and I don't have to tell you or your listeners. It's been really, really tumultuous. Uh, we've seen a lot of, I think, appropriate correction of, of valuations throughout the market. We are really a seed stage investing firm. Um, and so even since we launched in, in April of 2021, We've tried to remain extremely disciplined in terms of the valuations we're entering in at, and and sort of what are the what are the metrics we're looking to get a, get a business at from a valuations perspective. Um, uh, kind of getting to the, the the core of your question, um, you know, what are we looking at from a portfolio construction? We think about it in really three terms. Um, the first is we want really really healthy diversification for our port our, our our limited investors, our LPs. So we are not an industry specific fund. We invest across healthcare financial services, um, uh, excuse me, healthcare, financial services, agriculture, education. We do some Web3 investing as well. Um, so we are really trying to focus on a diversification of industries to make sure that the investments we're making aren't going to have any correlations with each other. Mm. But in terms of portfolio construction beyond that, we do really look at the valuations and we want to understand what's the entry multiple we're getting in at. And then every investment we make, we are expecting a 10x return on that investment. And so we have to be very, very specific about, okay, if we're getting in at a $10 million valuation, do we see a very specific path forward for that company to reach a $100 million valuation or more, right? So this is, and to any entrepreneur listening, this is how venture capitalists are thinking about their portfolio. You know, net-net, they want to end up at a three, maybe four X multiple on their invested capital. Um, and so any investment they make has to reach that 10 X because they know some of them are going to go to zero. Others are going to be sort of big winners. So that's really what we think about from a financial perspective. And then in terms of the sort of the third element I wanted to speak to was geographic. So in our investment portfolio, we are very specific about the, in, the geographies that we invest in, looking to really, I think, piggyback on something that happened in 2020, which was, I think, a decentralization of venture talent, right? In 2010 to 2020, safe to say north of 80% of all venture talent, venture founders were based in Silicon Valley in New York City, right? Oh. I don't know what the number is today. I think we'll find out at the next census, if you will. But I'm really confident based on what we've seen that a lot of those folks realize I don't have to build a business in Silicon Valley anymore. I can go to Nashville, Tennessee. I can go to Chattanooga, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Chicago. You know, you're, you pick your traditionally underfinanced geography. There's an incredible amount of talent there. And what I think not so many people realize is if I'm investing in a deal with a world-class founder in Nashville, Tennessee, I can get into that deal at a $10 million valuation as opposed to what have been a $30 million valuation based in Silicon Valley. 
So that to me is just immediately a competitive competitive advantage and one that we are definitely trying to take advantage of within our own portfolio. Interesting. And, and in your portfolio, do you, do you look at, you know, what is the right level of diversification across the different sectors that you've invested in? Sorry, can you ask that question one more time? Like, uh, you, you know, you said that you, you are uh, not industry uh, agnostic, mm. but, but do you look right. at right level of diversification across the different sectors? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, the question we ask ourselves, I, I talk about the jockey. Obviously, you want to find a jockey that's in an industry that's expanding. Nice. Um, so in terms of how we're diversifying across them, our portfolio right now in fund one is just about 30 companies. I think in total, the portfolio will be something in the range of 30 to 35. And so what we really look to do is cluster investments in each of these different industries. Um, we don't have a specific allocation of capital. It's not to say, hey, listen, we've got a million dollar health tech fund. We've got a million dollar financial services fund. We have to be opportunistic in the, in the deals that were, are coming to us. Um, but we definitely are going to say to ourselves, hey, listen, at this point, we've got, let's say, six companies that are healthcare focused. We're probably not going to make any new healthcare investments based out of fund one. Um, we're already starting to talk about what does fund two look like and sort of, you know, preheating those conversations, warehousing some opportunities as we raise fund two. But yeah, we are definitely focused on clustering those investments, but making sure we have clusters across a number of growing and expanding industries. Got it. And, and do you also look at uh, your ownership and your best companies? Do you think you can have mm. a 20% of ownership in each of these, uh, your best companies over the years? Yeah, ownership target, you know, uh, target equity percentage is a really important question. Um, I'm glad that you asked it. We are a smaller fund, right? So listen, fund one for us was $11 million. Um, that gives us a little bit of capital to work with. Uh, when you get into some of these later deals, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging. We have a very specific follow-on strategy as well. We've invested about 40, we'll invest about 45 to 50% of initial capital uh, into uh, initial investments, right? So that's the first investment we make into a portfolio company. And then 55 to 60% of that capital will be reserved for follow-on. So no, we, to answer your question in short, no, we're not hitting a 20% ownership stake. We don't have the size to do that, obviously. We're targeting something between five and 7% in any deal that we're doing. Um, and obviously that comes with the rights to maintain our pro rata equity ownership in any future rounds. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of data and, and research to tell us that doubling down on the winners in the venture capital industry is really how you achieve that power law, right? So right. you want to see those power law returns, you, you've got to continue to grow with the, the winners. So depending on the size of the round, we've done a couple of follow-ons into the series A, depending on the size of the round, we may have the capital to increase that ownership in companies that seem to be accelerating very quickly. But on average, we're seeing ownership around 5% throughout, throughout our portfolio. Interesting. And, uh, and how, how do you approach uh, you know, outcome scenario planning, especially you know, mm. with, with, your, with your first fund? Mm. It is, um, I think it's a tough question, if I'm being honest, for any venture capital firm that's at our stage to answer. Um, it's not to say that it's not something that we take into consideration. Um, you know, as you look at as you look at outcomes, as you look at, at the potential for these firms to have successful exits, what we do know is that 80 to 85 percent of any successful exit is going to be through a strategic acquisition. Okay. Right. So, what does that look like? That's that's the the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons of the world coming around and, and gobbling up what is the could be potential competition. Um, you know, the number of initial public offerings that you're going to see in a portfolio of our construction is very, very small. Um, and so what's the best way that you can start to support a portfolio company that 
in all likelihood, if they are successful, they're going to have a strategic acquirer is by making introductions. So when we go into a diligence phase of a portfolio company, are we saying, okay, we have to have a clear cut plan for how this company is going to exit, what it's going to look like, who that acquirer is going to be? No, we don't. I don't think that's realistic. I think there's so many aspects of a, a startup at the seed stage that are going to change that that is a bit of a fool's errand. Um, what it does mean we can do is on behalf of our portfolio, be making introductions to corporations and large enterprises that we think might be interested in the product. I think the single best thing that a startup can do to that end is bring in a, a Google, bring in a Microsoft, bring in a Workday as both a partner, i.e. an investor, all of these firms have venture arms, as well as a customer, right? Allow Workday to be using your product. And if they start to see what they like, they're going to start to think to themselves, well, it wouldn't cost us very much to buy this company up. And, you know, on average, Workday is going to spend something north of $300 million to acquire a company. So um, outco outcome scenario planning is, is a piece of the puzzle. Um, I don't think it's something that you can have written in stone. I think there's just so much variability to it. But, you know, I think by continuing to make introductions on behalf of our portfolio to large enterprises and corporations, we can help move that ball along. Correct. Uh, also, also, you know, you, you have a new fund, but but you also look at you know uh, the loss rates and the and the and the downside uh, protection uh, about the startups which are which are failed. Yeah. So let me make sure I understand the question. So how how are we how are we constructing and how are we managing the portfolio from a perspective of how many companies are going to fail? Is that kind of what you're getting to? Yeah. 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 It's a you know it, it's interesting to me when we look at the venture capital industry and we look at the failure rates, right. it's, uh, it's a little bit sobering, right? I mean, you pick the number, it's somewhere between 80 and 90% of all companies cool. at any point when they're started are going to fail. And that number actually doesn't get that much better, Rohit, when you look at the companies that have taken on venture funding. Hmm. And that's pretty disconcerting, right? I mean, our job as investors is to help mitigate the risks and I would actually take it a little bit further. Our job as investors is to increase the odds of success. Right. And so if you ask yourself that question, what can an investor do? There's a number of things. One of the things we as a fund are doing is focusing on what I would describe as the mental health and, and the overall well-being of our portfolio founders. Um, so it, very specifically, our average check size at the seed stage is $250,000. We allocate 2% on top of that. So in this scenario, 5K, but, but not within the check. So ultimately our allocation to that company is going to be $255,000. $5,000 on top of that for the entrepreneur to put towards their own mental, their own emotional, their own spiritual well-being. The reason we did this is because as we launched this fund and we looked at the data, what it told us was that 60% of the time, the failure of startups is related to things like co-founder conflict, uh, bad investor relationships, depression, anxiety, burnout. That's the stuff that, in, in my estimation, is really killing businesses. Yeah, the, the product matters, the go-to-market strategy, all these things, the team, vital. But if you have a team that is well-constructed, you have a strong product, and you are well-cared for, yeah. I believe that you're going to push through that adversity. And at the end of the day, I mean, if you really listen to the stories of the most successful entrepreneurs, what emerges to me is a story of grit. It is a story of resilience. And you're not going to be resilient if you're marriage is falling apart, if you're not having conversations with your kids, if, if you are sacrificing, I'll use the term, if you're growing at all costs, and that costs involve things that are on your personal side, I really believe that your ability to have that resilience is incredibly decreased. 
So when we allocate this 2% to our founders, you know, it's, it's a bit of a dual function. Obviously, I want them to work with coaches. I want them to work with leadership development, with counselors. We actually have a partner organization called Cadence Group. Um, I'd encourage everybody listening to this to check them out, Cadence with a K. And they exist to provide these type of services and resources to early stage entrepreneurs. Um, so the analogy of, of athletes entrepreneur is a brilliant one in my mind. We see, you know, you see... Uh, LeBron James, you see, uh, you know, um, Tom Brady, they've got dozens and dozens of coaches for every aspect of their life. But when we ask an early stage entrepreneur to do the impossible, to go from zero to one, we give them very few resources to do it with. And so we're really proud of this aspect of our fund. Uh, I, I think it's the right thing to do, but, you know, I hope to the entrepreneurs listening as well. You can see this as a differentiation, right? This is really what we want to provide in terms of our value-add services. My hope, Rohit, is that at the end of the day, our portfolio is not just 10%, 15% of our portfolio being operational and profitable. I hope it's 30, 40, 50%. I hope we can change, literally, I hope we can change the business model of venture capital to create a success and an outcome scenario that is significantly more profitable and significantly more sustainable. Interesting. You talk about cadence. Is that is that like a like a software product? Is it? Uh, it's not actually. It's it's um, no. Thank you for asking. Cadence Group. Uh, it, the URL is find cadence. F I N D K A D E N C E. Findcadence.com. It's not a software because I think at times software uh, it, it lacks the relational component of it. It is a service based organization that provides world class entrepreneurial coaching to early stage founders. And I think what's so different about it is, you know, if you're a Fortune 500 or even a growth stage startup, you have the cash flow, you right. have the balance sheet to be able to afford something like this. But what about that founder who's at the very earliest stages of the business? They just took, you know, maybe a bit of venture funding, maybe they're bootstrapping their business. How do they afford that coaching? Well, Cadence is doing a lot of amazing things to make it an affordable activity for entrepreneurs at the earliest stages. And I would contend. That is the single most important point for a founder to have a coach. So much is being formed. I mean, it's like, it's like a, uh, it's a child, right? You're, you're absorbing all this information and you need to process and you need to create something that reflects the values that you want for your business. So yeah, I'm, I'm, we partnered with them. We've been sending for our portfolio founders have unfettered access to Cadence Group, um, which we're super proud of. We think it's an amazing relationship for them to be bringing on. And I'd encourage any other, both entrepreneurs or venture investors that have this same thought, the same thesis in their mind to check out Cadence Group because we've been thrilled with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's super interesting. I'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, especially for founders, Please. you know, uh, who are always looking to, uh, who have so much on the plate and, you know, I think the, uh, they, they need to focus uh, on ensuring that they have yeah. the right talent and money in the bank account. Uh, what advice would you give to them on how do how do you focus on your day to day basis and, uh, and and on the mental and physical health? Whew. boy, <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, it's not you can't do it alone. Like I don't know how else to say it. You know, I mean, it, it, you, you I laugh a little bit because everything you just said is it's overwhelming, and you you put you maybe you put it on a piece of paper to look at all the things you have to do in a day, and it's impossible. It's literally impossible. Um, I, I, was, I had the chance to do a little podcast a couple months ago and I, a similar question was asked of me. And, and the best answer I could give was it's a set of priorities. You know, at the end of the day, we are just a function of our priorities because you can't do everything. Some people can, they have limited their exposure to say, I, I can exercise and eat healthy and spend time here and do my job. 
entrepreneurs, I know for a fact that they cannot do everything, but you have to be very clear about what matters. Um, I want to say that in two sort of contexts. Right? The first is, you know, you have to decide what's more important, you know, family, business, social life, friends. There is a season for each of those, right? I understand founders who don't want to spend time going to the movies or going to shows or whatever it might be because they're building their, their startup. That's not wrong, just to be clear, right? But it's a, it's a choice. And you have to understand that we are all just functions of the, cho the choices that we're making. So be intentional with the way you're prioritizing your personal versus your professional life. Let's start there. Then let's kind of drill back down into what's maybe a little bit more specific to this conversation, which is within your professional life, within your startup, the business you're running, how do you manage the important and the urgent? Something's always going to be on fire. There's just no doubt about it. Something's always going to be breaking. Something A customer could always use a little bit more attention, but that isn't necessarily the important thing that you're doing. The important thing that you're doing, and we actually, when we have conversations with portfolio founders, we it's really simple. Tell me about your customers and tell me about your cash. That's a business, you know? And I mean, we can get really complicated and we can get into all these different metrics, but how much money do you have before you run out of money and your business no longer exists? And what are you doing to bring in more customers? I can keep it that simple. And, and I think there's a thousand things hovering around that and circulating that that affect each of those different categories. But at the end of the day, ask yourself, is this thing going to help me preserve and or bring in more cash? And is this thing that I'm doing going to help me bring in more customers? And if you can do those things and be just absolutely religious about attacking those two buckets, I think you're going to give yourself the best probability of success. Um, and so those are the conversations we have with our portfolio founders. Um, one of the portfolio companies we have right now that I'm just, I'm just so incredibly impressed with is a group that's building a platform. They're here in Chicago. It's called Ascent. Shout out to the Ascent team. Uh, they're building a platform for firefighters. It's an emergency response software platform that sort of consolidates all of the emergency response services that a fire chief might need to use. And I have been so impressed with this team because what they're doing, Rohit, is they are spending their days going to Podunk towns in the middle of the of the state of Illinois and the broader Midwest, right? Places that don't have nice restaurants and aren't downtown Chicago, but they're going there and they're focusing on saying, hey, Fire Chief Marshall, Fire Chief Smith, what are the issues that you're struggling with? How can I make your job better? And more importantly, how can I make sure that at the end of this, this event that you're going through, we bring home every single firefighter in your unit? And they're sitting there and they're listening to the feedback and then they're building it into the product. And you know what they're doing? That is being customer obsessed. And so too often, I think we see folks building things in, in a vacuum and building it in their own echo chamber. And they're not going out into the market and saying, hey, tell me what's beautiful about this thing and tell me what's ugly. And I'm going to amplify the beautiful and I'm going to get rid of the ugly. And by the time I'm done, you're going to be a delighted customer. Interesting, interesting. And um uh, you know, you, you, you've been, uh, been to B-School, you know, they, they teach you about market sizing, but yeah. know, uh, do you think, you know, with companies like Uber and Airbnb where uh, where investors could not look at, you know, uh, analyzing the market size correctly, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes, you know, investors make when they analyze uh, markets in the past? And, and you know, how, how, how do you uh, look at uh, market size? Uh, of a public mm. industry. Yeah, I, boy, we could get into some some technical analysis there. Analysis of I, the companies you bring up are are really good examples. Um, I think it's more of a, a theoretical conversation around what is the objective and purpose of a venture investor. 
uh, I spent a little bit of time dabbling in business school and private equity, right? And in private equity, every single lever, every single lever that you have, you need to understand if it's pulled, what's going to happen? If it goes this way, what's going to happen? I mean, there shouldn't be a deal in a private equity portfolio that goes sideways, right? Because you know all of the different variables. That isn't venture capital, Right. I mean, we're not here to, you know, people don't give us their money to do an excellent job of evaluating a market. They give us their money to understand where's the puck going. Right. Right. What's the next thing? And and Uber and Airbnb are perfect examples. They created new industries, right? From from thin air. And that's that's really that's really quite something. So I think in general, what I see is uh, and my own sort of bias, if you will, is a lot of folks want to understand, well, what is that market? Tell me the exact number. I want to see a bottoms up analysis, not just top down, yada, yada, yada. We've all heard sort of those, cliche, those, those commentaries. But what I'm more interested in is how good is this founding team? How good is the product? And is it so good that the switching costs from an existing customer to what they're doing is something that I believe can happen, right? Because if we know that they can acquire new customers and, and they're creating the phrase we like to use, Rohit, is a category defining technology then it's not about what the market is today. I don't care what you know, statista study you find or report that you're able to pull because the market doesn't exist. They're creating a new category. And, and for that, you know, we're, we're really, really bullish. You know, we invested in a company, another Chicago-based company. I'm not just saying Chicago-based companies, but there are a lot of really, really good ones. But uh, your questions are prompting these comments. It's called Cyber Pop-Up. And the founder, Dr. Christine Isacor, is creating basically the idea is if you took cybersecurity for small and medium-sized businesses and you applied that to the gig economy, take Uber's, Uber's business model and apply it to cybersecurity services, that's what her company Cyber Pop-Up is doing. And so when we were evaluating the opportunity, you look at the small and medium-sized business, you know, total addressable market. First of all, it's ginormous. It's humongous, right? But I think we're just looking at a fraction of it because most of the small and medium-sized businesses don't properly handle their cybersecurity expertise in-house. And so if Dr. Christine can create a new industry, a new category defining technology that provides on-demand cybersecurity expertise to these small and medium-sized businesses, her TAM's already very big, but I think it's just a fraction of what it could be. So I don't think we're paid to understand exactly how to calculate TAM perfectly, Rohit. I think we're paid to understand where's the puck going, how are industries and users, customers going to evolve, and how do we find organizations that are capitalizing on those shifts in technology. Interesting, and uh, you know, uh, you're a smaller fund, but uh, but uh, but what are what are uh, you know how how do you look at uh, conditions where you have to collaborate with other VC funds? Do you think the venture capital landscape is getting more collaborative uh, hmm. than than before? Yeah, it is. I love that. Um, I hope so. I hope so, man. I, I, I love working with other funds. So you've had some great investors on this call, uh, on this podcast, I should say, in the past. I'm honored to be here and to kind of follow in their footsteps. But man, I hope venture capital is getting more collaborative. I think the best investors understand that it takes a village. You asked me a few moments ago, how do these founders do it? And uh, the answer is they need great cap tables. That's one of them, right? And they need entrepreneurs, excuse me, they need investors that are going to do things to support that, right? I mean, we're trying to do our part, allocating to the mental health of our portfolio founders. Every fund's kind of got their thing, right, Rohit, that they can kind of hang their hat on. So um, personally, our approach to, to, to collaboration and syndication is we are for it. Now that of course assumes that we have a, a trusting relationship with that other firm. 
I think the, the worst thing you can possibly do in venture is to lose somebody's trust by either being duplicitous or, or dishonest or whatever it might be. Um, so we take a very open hand sort of um, honest and candid relationship with other venture funds. And when we, when we find deals that fit that venture fund's thesis or whatever it might be, we are excited, not just happy, we're excited to share it. Because what that means is I know I'm bringing another great potential investor onto the cap table of my portfolio company. And that's a win. That's a win for everyone. Um, so I think what I actually think is venture is, is we're sort of seeing the same thing that happened in the tech world, which is you're getting the mega firms, right? The, the, I don't even need to name them, the mega firms. And then you're seeing a huge contingent of these niche emerging funds, right? Which I would include ourselves in where we're sub $50 million, right? But we have a unique, we have a unique approach, whether it's, Hey, I've got great deal flow and sourcing through Twitter and I really connect with my community or I have a really unique value add, which I bring to the portfolio. I think this emerging fund community is incredibly collaborative. And I've been encouraged by that. I've got it. I've had the chance to build and, and, and co-invest with a number of those folks for which we're very, very grateful. And my sense is that that's where the industry is going as opposed to companies continuing to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so I'm excited. We're, we're thrilled and honored to be part of that group and excited to see where it goes from here. Uh, interesting, and uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, a few times about uh, Chicago-based startups, uh, but also, mm. you know, you've been uh, 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 you've invested across uh, across US. But 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 since you know uh, the 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 COVID scare has subsided, uh, founders are going back into offices of you know offices opening up. Uh, do you do you, do you feel that uh, you know you'll go back to the days where uh, you'll be restricted to a certain geography or a certain city, uh, or do you think mm. it's going to continue? to you know invest across uh, across Oof. man you're not holding back on me here you're making <laughs> me answer all the tough ones I, I i wish i had a crystal ball I'll, I'll tell you my own experience i think i think being in person there's there's something about being in the same room as somebody that can't be duplicated over zoom that's just a fact right. and for that i mean our team is is all located here in chicago as we we're, we're small but we're expanding so i do see uh sort of a distributed model in our future, but more towards the sort of founder and the startup question. Um, I think it's each team has to make their own decision, Rohit. You know, I think some folks feel that the the functionality they can achieve over Zoom, given the talent they can secure, maintaining a distributed workforce, the the ROI is 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 there, right? It's a positive investment for them to make. But I think I've I've run into a number of other firms, Ascent in Chicago being one of them. They're all in the same office. It's an old, uh, it's an old fire station that they've repurposed into an office. And man, we just we go there uh, from time to time just to check in on the team and the productivity they're able to achieve in this this beautiful office that they have is is amazing. So I don't have an answer for you. I think the the pendulum swung very very hard in 2020 in one direction. Yeah. I think it's starting to come back, and and we'll find somewhere in the middle where each team is going to make their own decision. I will say that's not a, a contributing factor to whether we make an investment. I'll just be very clear. I think there are some investors who are saying, hey, if you're not all together, we're not going to participate. That's not part of our investment thesis or our calculations. Interesting. And um, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh, I've got a different answer. I don't know. Maybe you haven't heard this one, but there's a book called Completing Capitalism. Um, is that name ring a bell to you, Rohit? Uh, no, I, I haven't read that one. I'll, I'll look, in, look up to it. 
Yeah, it's really good. I, I, I there's so many. I, yeah, I don't know. I could have answered all this. I've been reading all the sort of trending books these days. But Completing Capitalism is a really interesting book, which looks at Milton, Fried, Milton Friedman's definition of capitalism from the 1970s. And and Milton Friedman, at that time, the most scarce resource was financial capital, cash, right? And so his theory of capitalism was to suggest that we need to maximize for financial returns in the in, in, in shareholder value right? We've all heard that. I went to the University of Chicago. I know it intimately. But the book takes a longer exposition about capitalism in general and says there's actually four forms of capital. There's financial, there's human, which is the talents that I bring to the table. There's social, which is now the relationship, Rohit, that you and I have. There's social capital to be had there. And then there's environmental. What are the resources of the earth that we are using? And the thesis of the book is that completing capitalism the ideal structure of capitalism is one that optimizes for all four forms of capital, as opposed to maximizing for just one. And I read it and it blew my mind. And I truly believe that there's a lot of challenges in our, our world, our economy that we're seeing today, which stem from the maximization of financial profits, as opposed to the optimization of all four financial capital, excuse me, all four forms of capital. Um, so I'd encourage everyone to read it. You know, I, I, I believe capitalism works. But I think it works in a more opportunistic and a more optimized fashion as opposed to what we see in, in a lot of the complaints we see in our, our economy, which is sort of the concentration of wealth. So I love it. It really changed my perspective on what capitalism is and what it can be. And it's something that we certainly try to achieve here at 11 Tribes. Interesting. We'll put on the show notes and I'll try to read this one. Uh, and Great. You know, if you could go back in time when you started 11 Tribes, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Boy, it's not that I can't think of anything. It's like I can think of too many things that I would have focused on differently. Um, No, I mean, our journey has been our journey has been a really special one that uh, I'm very, very grateful for. Um, I think if there was one thing that I could do differently, it would have been to, it's kind of back to the question that I asked, uh, we ask of founders when they go to, to, to speak to their customers. I believe that the best form of venture capital views, is, views founders as their customers. That's what we at 11 Tribes are trying to do. And I think, I think the, the older model views investors, LPs as customers. It's not to say that we don't as well. We're trying to service both of them. But if I could go back and, and restart 11 Tribes, I would have spent so much time and I spent, we did some of this, but not enough. I would have spent so much time prior to the launch having conversations with founders, asking them, hey, what are the things that you need, right? Like what's the pain point that you are experiencing as a founder? And what could an investor, what could a new fund like 11 Tribes do to solve for that pain point? So it's the exact same question that I'm, at, I'm encouraging our entrepreneurs, our founders to ask their customers. And so I, I you know, it's been a journey of, of evolving and iterating on our model, but had we had more conversations early on with entrepreneurs, with early stage founders, asking them, what can we do better? How can we change the model? I think we could have been even more successful from the get-go. Um, so we're continuing to do that today. You know, we, we ask our portfolio founders and others all the time, what are the things that we can be doing better? Um, and, I, and I hope we don't get complacent. You know, I hope we continue to iterate and find the best version of venture capital that we possibly can. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that answer. And uh, what, what's your favorite online tools? Example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Uh, found this one recently. 
I struggle, man, if anyone has the same struggle, you're going to love this. I struggle so much on calls trying to pay attention and simultaneously take notes. How oh, it's, it's just impossible. Right. And, and anyway, it's called fathom. And I don't even know these people. I, I should reach out cause they're probably raising around, but I, I just discovered it on the internet. It's called fathom F A T H O M. It integrates with zoom. It is a note taker, oh. but it's so much more like you can categorize each of them in real time. And so when you go back, you can pull out the specific text from that categorization and I don't have to take notes anymore. I can just look at my Fathom recording and pull out the information that I need. So that's my, that is my tool du jour right now. Uh, and Fathom, if you're listening to this, reach me, reach out. Cause boy, I think I'm interested in investing in your company. So <laughs> it's a great one. Awesome. Is, is it Fathom HQ? Uh, I was just trying to look it up on. Uh, you know, it's uh let's see, Fathom recording. Um, Fathom, you know, the URL is fathom.video. Right. Oh, oh, interesting. And it's free right now. I don't know when they're going to start charging for it, but it's it's free, which is super, super cool. So fathom.video. Um, yeah, highly recommend everyone check it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll put down show notes. I've heard about Otter, but I've not uh, heard about yeah. Fathom. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried both. I, I find Fathom to be a little bit more easy to use. And like I said, right now it's free. So uh, might yeah. as well take advantage while you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Mark, what is the best way people can can reach out to you and know more about 11 tribes? Yeah, uh, you know, at the risk of getting bombarded, I, just email me. I, I love my, The best part of my job, Rohit, is talking to founders. So if, if you're a founder or even another you know investor, reach out. My email is just mark, M-A-R-K, at 11tribes.vc. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm not that great at Twitter, Rohit. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, but we do post. I do try to share some nuggets every once in a while. It's just Mark Phillips VC on Twitter or just find me on LinkedIn. So those are really the three easiest ways. But man, I, if this has caught, caught a nerve or, or, or struck a chord with you, I, I hope you'll reach out and let's have a conversation because that'll make my day. No, absolutely. We'll, we'll put down the show notes, Mark. Thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation. Thanks, Rohit. Great to be here.